Matthew chapter 27. We're going to be looking at verses 45 through 50 as we continue to look at the king on Calvary's cross. Matthew chapter 27, in verse 45, it says, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lava sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. For generations, the Holy Land has been called terra, sancta. It's the Latin phrase for holy land. There's a reason why it's called the Holy Land. It's because this is the place where the revelation of God unfolded. This is the place where Jesus was born and lived and died. It was also the place where he comes back to life. It's the place where Jesus defeats death itself in a glorious resurrection. The death of Jesus is the record of the greatest sin ever committed. That according to Acts chapter 2 verse 23. But it was also the manifestation of the greatest victory ever accomplished. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 4, 14. Much of my life, much of my adult life has been spent asking and answering Bible questions. What is the most important Bible question I've ever been asked? And I've been asked thousands and thousands. The most important Bible question I've ever been asked is this question. Why did Jesus Christ have to die on a cross? The answer at first seems easy. But it grows in complication. When you view the question through the lens of the revelation of God. Did Jesus die for sin? Yes, the just for the unjust. The death of Jesus is a testimony, like I said, to man's sin in Acts 2.23. But also the triumph of God's grace, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. The death of Jesus provides sinful man title. Access to eternal life, John 12, 24. The death of Jesus secures salvation for the sinful and deliverance for the saint. But it's more. It's way more. In order to answer the question, I want to once again draw your attention to this particular passage of, of Scripture and look at 
We begin with a terrifying darkness in verse 45. It says, now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. We would do well to remember the order of events surrounding the placement of Jesus on Calvary's cross. You'll recall that Jesus arrived at Golgotha in verse 33. Also, it's mentioned in Mark 15, 22 and Luke 23, 33. Jesus is offered a mind-numbing drug to dull the pain, and he refuses that in verse 34. Jesus is crucified between two robbers in verses 35 through 38. He utters his first cry from the cross, Father, forgive them, Luke 23, 34. The Jews mock him in this particular passage, verses 39 through 43 of chapter 27. The robbers revile him. One repents and believes in verse 44. It says even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. There's a second cry from the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. In Luke 23, 43, Jesus tells the thief that there is a place where he is going. It's the place of the righteous dead. There's a third cry from the cross. Woman, behold your son in John 19, verses 26 through 27. And then the darkness descends here. Verse 45, Mark 15, 33, Luke 23, 44, all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record this supernatural darkness that descends on the land. And people have speculated, well, what was this? What exactly happened? Was this some astronomical phenomenon caused by the juxtaposition of of planets in the heavens? That's not even possible. It's Passover. Passover is always the time of the full moon. And even if it were some sort of natural astronomical eclipse, it would never have lasted this long. This was a supernatural darkness. This was God in heaven, the same God who created the heavens and the earth, who turns the lights out. It's as if God is going to provide some dignity, some measure of privacy for his suffering son. It lasts from the sixth hour. He's reckoning by Roman time. This is about noon until the ninth hour. This is about three o'clock in the afternoon. Matthew, Mark, Luke all mention the strange event and the darkness becomes a, a kind of symbol of the darkest moment in human history. When I was traveling back from Israel, I watched a movie on the plane ride called The Darkest Hour. It features Gary Oldman playing Winston Churchill in World War II when the entire British army is stranded on the shores of Dunkirk. There's 300,000 plus individuals. They're being threatened with complete 
annihilation by Nazi Germany. Churchill is faced with the choice to attempt to negotiate a peace with Hitler or face what looks like a certain defeat from superior forces. They literally are at the precipice of, 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 of existence, if you will. There's a scene in the movie where the pressure's on and they're trying to get Churchill to negotiate some sort of peace with honor and Churchill screams, you cannot negotiate with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. Yeah, that's exactly right. The Bible says that our enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It was the darkest hour for Britain, but this is an even darker hour. This is the day that the Son of God is being put to death for the sins of the world. Jesus is bearing the sins of all men. Jesus is bearing the judgment of God and the wrath of God against sin. Jesus is doing this to free human beings from sin and from death and judgment so that they could live forever. Paul speaks of this as a, as a part of the unsearchable depths of God's plan. In Romans 11.33, he writes, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has become his counselor, or who has given to him and it shall not be repaid to him, for of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. There is this dark moment, and the darkness is going to determine whether you're going to be saved or whether you're going to remain in your sin. The Life Application Bible commentary adds this quote, Nature testified to the gravity of Jesus' death while friends and enemies alike fell silent in the encircling gloom. The darkness on that Friday afternoon was both physical and spiritual. All nature seemed to return the stark tragedy of the death of God's son. Some see a fulfillment of Amos chapter 8 verse 9 where the darkness was a sign of God's judgment. Quote, in that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darkness and darken the earth in broad daylight that's exactly what happened the lights went out at noon I suspect that Amos's passage is probably literally true that the darkness didn't just go out in Jerusalem it didn't just go out in Judea it didn't just go out 
in the Eastern Hemisphere or the Western Hemisphere that there was some supernatural darkness that literally enveloped the earth. Jesus is bearing our sin on his body on the tree 1 Peter 2.24. This is Jesus who suffers for sin, the, un, the just for the unjust, so that they might be brought to God, it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. So the darkness, I'm going to suggest to you, might symbolize the darkness of sin. Sin loves darkness. Sin typically demands to be carried out in darkness in the darkness of the human heart, in the darkness of the human mind. Some have suggested that the darkness is a tragic symbol of the ultimate darkness that each and every human being will one day face. There will come a time when you will close your eyes for the final time. And what will happen... Could this be a symbol of God's withdrawal of the light, of God's presence? Could this be the darkness of God's anger with sin? Because sin and sinners deserve nothing but judgment and darkness. Isaac Watts powerfully captures the moment in one of his hymns when he writes, well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when God the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. This is the dark moment for Jesus. But it should cause each and every one of us to just consider just for a moment the dark moments that come in our, into our life. And I happen to know that for some of you, there have been some very, very dark moments as the bad news comes about some of the physical circumstances that you might be facing or the relationship issues that you might be struggling with, whether you're talking about the loss of a child, whether you're talking about these dark moments that come into our life that challenge us and make us wonder about the presence of God in our life. But even the longest sorrows have an ending. The winter can't last forever. The winter has to give place to the spring and the spring to the summer. Spurgeon preached, quote, The night shall not hang its darkness forever over our souls. The sun shall yet arise with healing beneath its wings, unquote. It sounds cliche, but it really is true. It really is darkest before the dawn and the darkness will give way to the light. And we Christians aren't exempt from dark moments. We're not exempt from dark experiences. We will have our fair share of pain and sorrow and setback and confusion and boredom. But you'll never appreciate the miracle of sunrise until you've waited 
in the darkness. And some of you have. You've waited in the darkness. You've waited for the sun to come up. You've wondered whether the darkness would ever go away. And look what it says, this troubling cry. Look what it says in verses 46 through 49. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there in verse 47, when they heard that said, this man's calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, read drugged wine. Put it on a reed. They put a sponge. This is a creature from the sea. They attach it to a reed and they offer it. They press it to his lips. They offer it to him to drink. Verse 49, the rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. In order to understand the passage, you have to understand a popular tradition that was rampant in the second temple period among the Jewish believers. Remember, they are celebrating Passover. They're putting out a chair for Elijah. It was deeply believed in tradition that Elijah was tasked with the job of coming to the aid of the righteous. They would have stories about people in need, righteous people who need some sort of supernatural intervention. And so it was believed that Jesus was calling out for Elijah to supernaturally intervene so that the horrid consequences that is taking place on this cross could somehow go away. William MacDonald puts it well when he says, quote, but it was not the time for Elijah to come. Malachi 4.5. This is the time for Jesus to die. Unquote. The bystanders, verse 47, misinterpret the words of Jesus. The man is calling for Elijah, they said, but John's gospel records another thing that Jesus says at this point. I thirst, John 19, 28 and 29. A person ran, soaked a sponge in the drugged wine. This is the same drugged wine that Jesus has previously rejected. And so as we see this scene unfold, different people have ask the question, what am I looking at? What, what exactly am I seeing? What exactly is happening in the text? Is this some sort of act of kindness? As they're trying to alleviate the pain that Jesus is experiencing? Is this further mocking? What exactly is happening? Are these people trying to relieve his pain? Or perpetuate his pain. Scholars are divided. Some say that the sour wine would serve as a remedy for the thirst. Is this act going to hasten Jesus' death? Is it going to perpetuate the suffering? The crowd resumes 
the mocking and the jeering and the taunting. It says, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. It's another way of saying, don't provide any relief whatsoever for Jesus. Don't give him anything to make him comfortable in his death. Let's see if there's some sort of divine intervention that's available to him. But so it is for us. People in pain cry out for relief. Who can blame them? If you've ever been in a, in a hospital bed, if you've ever been in a deep difficulty, if you've ever asked God, Lord, will, will you please help me out of this? Will you restore me to health and wellness? We ourselves can often cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There are seasons of the soul when God's smile, God's favor seems dark and distant. But we have to remember something. We must never forget. We must never forget that God never really forsakes us. Jesus said, I will never leave you. Or forsake you. Jesus will keep his promise to you. Even though the moment seems dark. And it seems difficult. And it seems empty. He will not forsake you. So what are we to make of this troubling cry? This is the fourth cry from Calvary's cross. Both Mark and Matthew point out that he's quoting Psalm 22. In the ancient language of Aramaic. Except that Mark uses the term Eloi, Eloi. Matthew uses the term Eli, Eli. Some have suggested that the cry is a reflection of the profound sense of abandonment and desertion that Jesus feels as he, as he bears the sin of the world. He is literally singing a song from his great Great, great, 14 times great. Grandfather David. David wrote that song. The text reads about the ninth hour, which, which makes me wonder. It says it was dark from the third to the ninth hour. It says it's about the ninth hour. Do you think the sun has come back out? Has the darkness lifted? Has the, has the envelope, this dark blanket disappeared? Has the sun returned? And it says he cried with, listen carefully, a loud voice. Has his strength returned? Was this question asked in surprise? Was it asked in despair? That's not even possible. What does David's psalm Tell us. If you're unfamiliar with Psalm chapter 22, this prophetic psalm, it's a psalm of lament. 
It's David singing the blues. David expresses his trust in God in Psalm 22, verses 3 through 5, and again in verses 9 and 10, in spite of his apparent rejection by God in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 22. And men, he's rejected by God in verses 1 and 2. He's rejected by men in verses 6 through 8. He petitions God for both help and deliverance in verse 11. He's asking God, please help me in verses 19 through 21. He speaks of the attacks of his enemies in verses 11 through 18 in the, in the psalm. David is determined to praise God in verses 23 and 26. He believes that God has heard David's prayer in verse 24. And then the psalm predicts this worldwide worship of God taking place in verses 27 through 31. This is maybe one of the most quoted psalms in the entire New Testament. So what are we to think? What are we to think of Jesus quoting this psalm? Has God abandoned Christ? Whatever else it is, and whatever else has happened, it is a poetic expression of the deep agony of Messiah's death for the sin of the world. This is a profound agony. Jesus separated from God for sin. I know last week Jason quoted from Habakkuk, that wonderful prophet. In that passage, of course, it says the just will live by faith, but in the opening chapter of Habakkuk, it says in verse 13, chapter 1, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil. You cannot look on wickedness. There's something profound. There's something mysterious happening. How does our feelings of being forsaken differ from Jesus' experience on the cross. I'm going to suggest something to you. That our feelings are just that, feelings. That we're never really forsaken. But I think this is the difference between what Jesus is experiencing in this passage and what we experience in a profound way, in a mysterious way, in an altogether unknowable way. Jesus really is being separated from his father. The fracture is real. We're grieved when we sense the presence of God withdrawing from us, when we, when we sense his fellowship isn't present. How are we to calculate what Jesus is experiencing at this very moment? And I don't even pretend to know what happened in the fracture between the Father and the Son on Calvary's cross. But something is happening. It is consequential. Chris Tomlin in his great song Amazing Love says, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. There's something happening. 
This is the cup that Jesus alluded to earlier. This is the cup that he is going to drink the dregs. This is the cup that he made reference to in Gethsemane's garden. In chapter 26, verse 39, where he begins to pray and he begs God to allow the cup to pass. Not once, not twice, but three times. And he's crushed. This is without nails. This is without nails. He is being crushed and he is yielding great droplets of blood. Again, the life application commentary suggests, quote, the physical agony was horrible. But the spiritual alienation from God was the ultimate torture. Jesus suffers this double death so that we can never have to experience eternal separation from God. This is real separation. So you don't have to. And this is interesting to me because was Calvary's cross a sign of God's acceptance of Christ? Or rejection of Christ. And this is going to provide part of the foundation of the New Testament. As they begin to argue. As the religious leaders and the Jewish people amongst themselves begin to debate. How can you possibly tell us that Jesus is favored by God. When he's allowed to die in such a humiliating fashion. Why doesn't God deliver Jesus from this horrible Painful, decidedly supernatural, wicked death. And the reason to Peter, James, and John, and the reason to Paul was obvious. It was to secure your deliverance. What would have happened if Jesus, in fact, had been delivered from that cross? If for some reason he is delivered from that cross, you remain in your sin. You still suffer from the curse of the law, Galatians 5.1. You remain under the condemnation of sin, Romans 8.1. You remain in bondage to slavery and sin, Romans 6.8. You remain subject to the evil of this world, Galatians 1.4. You would remain under the influence and the power of darkness, Colossians 1.13, where it says, he has delivered delivered us he has delivered us he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his own dear son you would remain in perpetual fear of death hebrews 2:15 you would be subject to your own sinful selves galatians chapter 2 verse 20 paul writes i've been crucified with christ it's no longer i who live but Christ lives in me and the life that I now live in the flesh, I, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There was only one way that Paul could possibly interpret what had happened on this cross. It was the moment that he disappeared to never reappear. Calvary's cross is the only solution to the problem of your sin. Calvary's cross is the 
only deliverance from the curse of the broken law. Calvary's cross is the only solution to the condemnation of sin, the evil in this world, the power of darkness in your life, the perpetual fear of death, the power over your own sinful self. Jesus must die so that you can be set free. The gospel then records two other statements. It is finished, John 19, 30. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, Luke 23, 46. And then there's this triumphant shout in verse 50. Look what it says. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. I want you to look carefully at that expression. And Jesus cried out again not with a tepid voice, not with a weak voice, not with a voice that's barely, barely holding on to life. The loud shout indicates the presence of strength, not weakness. This indicates control and awareness right up to the end. Most people would go into shock on a cross. Most people would have already lapsed into a coma. Most people suffering from this kind of extreme pain coupled with torture and exhaustion would have already gone into shock. And then when you go into shock, guess what? You can no longer lift your hands up and breathe. Jesus is dying by choice. What does it mean? What does it mean that he yielded up his spirit? The writer's trying to help you understand something. That Jesus dies in a way that's different in every way. We die because we must Jesus dies because he chooses to die. Because he chooses to die. If you have ever had anyone say to you, do you, do you think choice is real? Do you think, do you, do you think freedom of choice is a real thing? Jesus decides the philosophical answer once and forever. Jesus' choice to die for you is real and cosmic and eternal. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, I lay my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay down my life. I lay down my life so that I can pick it up. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. This is Jesus's way of saying, this is my choice. Jesus says, I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. Jesus does this voluntarily, specifically, purposely. Pause. Do you have that choice? Could you just all of a sudden close your eyes and will yourself to death? I suspect that there might be some of you who could bring that to pass. 
you could think long and hard about not being here anymore. And you might prematurely hasten your death. But not a single one of you can bring your life back to life. It can't be done. Only Jesus can do that. So why does Jesus die on Calvary's cross? How in the world are we going to answer the question if we said it was to absorb God's wrath? That would be true. To turn away God's anger against sin, that would be true. But it wouldn't be the whole truth. Isaiah said in Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to Grief. The Old Testament says it was the Father's plan and the Father's will. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. In the New Testament, Paul writes in Romans 8.32, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Romans 3.25, God put Christ forward by his blood to be received by faith. None of you. I can't imagine a single one of you being able to put your own children forward for someone else. But God is going to do that exactly for you. He is going to do it on purpose. He's going to do it specifically. In the New Testament, Paul says that God does this. That God is going to do it. That it pleases God to put Jesus to death. And then all of a sudden our mind goes numb. Are, are you saying it pleased God to put Jesus to death? Yes. Why does Jesus die on the cross? To show the wealth and grace and love of God that he has for sinners. But even that's not the whole answer. Jesus dies to cancel the legal demands of the law against us. But that's not the whole answer. Jesus dies to establish the basis for our justification. But that's not the whole answer. Jesus dies to make us holy, blameless, and perfect. But that's not the whole answer. Jesus dies to give us a clear conscience and to obtain everything that's good for us but that's not the whole answer Jesus dies to give us eternal life and reconcile us to God but that's not the whole answer he dies to free us from the slavery of sin but that's not the whole answer he goes to the cross to make it the ground for boasting so that you have no other thing to appeal to to, to secure our resurrection from the dead, to disarm the rulers of darkness, to take your head out of the lion's mouth. You can't negotiate with sin. You may be willing to try to secure fellowship and relationship, forgiveness, apart from this cross. But it's not possible. Because you see, Jesus also dies to unleash the power of God in the gospel and to destroy the hostility between the races. The cross makes us equal and reconciled. 
Jesus dies for male and female, Jew and Gentile, to ransom a people from every tribe, every language, every nation, to rescue us from the final judgment, to secure God's joy and ours. Jesus dies so that we will be crowned with glory and honor and to show that even the worst evil that human beings can perpetuate in their wicked selfishness, God can still use it for good. And having said all of that, the question, why did Jesus die on the cross? I still can't give you an answer. The answer that I've already given is wholly inadequate. I've yet to plumb the depth of the question. My answer remains weak and insufficient. Spurgeon was right when he said, quote, There are some sciences that may be learned by the head, but the science of Christ crucified can only be learned by the heart You'll never understand what I'm talking about. Until in your own heart you realize just how terribly things have gone wrong. David Pryor wrote, quote, We never move on from the cross of Christ. All we do is move into a more profound understanding of the cross. And just for a moment, we remember Augustus to Plato's hymn that beckons our hearts to sing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die, rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no languor know? They, these for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. In my hand no price I bring. Simply to the cross of Christ I cling the three events at Christ's death are remarkable and overwhelming. The veil or the curtain in the Holy of Holies is going to be torn from the top to the bottom. The blood of Jesus opens and establishes a new and living way to God according to Hebrews chapter 19. Warren Wearsby suggests that this miracle would cause many priests later on to trust Jesus in Acts chapter 6 verse 7. The tombs are opened because the death of Jesus conquers death in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. The saints come out of the tombs after the resurrection of Jesus because Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. The enemies of Jesus confess his innocence. Judas says he was innocent. Pilate says he was innocent. Even towards the end of this chapter in verse 54, even the Roman soldier says 
So when the centurion and those who were with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. This question, why did Jesus have to die? And why on a cross? This is the one question that I've never been able to fully explain, fully examine, fully explore. Right when I think I know the answer, I discovered that there's something more that I've left out. But are you saved? Have you been saved from your sin? Have you trusted Jesus? Have you safely answered, at least in part, the question, why did Jesus have to die? How could you not know the answer? It was for you. It was for you. It was for you, my friend. Are you in a season of darkness? The light's going to come. Are you in a season of difficulty? It's never too late to cry out for hope. Are you in a season of despair? Cry out. Cry out. Cry out to God. Ask Him to change your heart and to help you understand, at least in part, the answer to the question, why did Jesus have to die on that cross? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray For the people who find themselves in that season of darkness, they're still waiting for the sun to come up. Lord, for the person who's in a season of difficulty and stubbornly refuses to ask for help, Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you even now. Lord, I pray that in their own heart they would say, Lord, Lord, I want to understand what's happening. I want to experience all that Gino talked about. Forgiveness, grace, mercy, love, reconciliation, the assurance of heaven. And Lord, I pray that you would remind them that there's always, there's always hope. That Lord, there's always love, that there's always a Savior who beckons for us to be reconciled. And so, Lord, again, I pray that in just some small way, we would have a deeper appreciation of what it means to know you and love you and what was exactly accomplished on this cross of Calvary. 
And so, Lord, again, draw people to yourself. Speak to their heart. Save the sinner. Deliver the saint. In Jesus' name, amen.